This audio is from South Fellowship Church. For more information about South Fellowship, please visit southfellowship.org. Let's pray. Lord, as we've just sung, um, your love, so amazing, so divine, that it requires of us, it, it demands of us in in joy, not in, not in just duty, but in joy to offer you everything that we have and everything that we are. Lord, in light of the fact that you've offered us everything that you have and everything that you are. And so, Father, um, help us walk into that today. Spirit, would you ask questions of our heart and our soul? Would you, um, if our fingers and hands are pried around something that, that aren't of you, would you gently, mercifully, yet boldly pry them off today, please? It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. Acts chapter 13, if you have a Bible, uh, you can turn there. We're continuing in our series through the book of Acts where we are tracing the movement of Jesus through um, the quote-unquote early church, the movement of Jesus through the early church. And we're coming to a critical passage, a critical point in the story, the narrative of the early church today. And, and so I'm going to invite you into the story of the church at Antioch this morning. We, um, a few weeks ago, were introduced to this church at Antioch. In many ways, the church at Antioch is the prototype church of the New Testament, we, we see this shift, this power shift from um, the church's epicenter being in Jerusalem. And then we, we see the story really shift more and more to this church at Antioch. And, and they are the epitome of, at least scripturally, what it looks like to be the called out people of God, the church, together. So we're going to dive into their story a little bit this morning in hopes that it would start to shape and inform our story as a, as a community and, and even our lives as individuals as we seek to lay our lives before Jesus to say, um, have your way. My uh, family, um, through our oldest son, Ethan, who's um, going to be six in, in January, has been introduced to um, the wonderful world of Legos. Um, I don't know if you're a parent, if you've been there, but um, my kids love playing Legos, especially my son, Ethan. Um, and, and Ethan is a little bit of a perfectionist. He may or may not get that from me. Now, I blamed his mom first service, but she's here this service. So she would look at me and go, uh-uh, that's you. That's all you. And so he's got a little bit of a perfectionist complex going on. And so here's what my son, Ethan, loves. He loves to get um, a box of Legos and here's what the box of Legos has in it. Everything you need to build the picture that's on the front. And you know what? It even gives you instructions. So if you're, if you're sort of out of the Lego game for a while, you, you know this. You maybe remember it, that you can buy these boxes. They tell you exactly how to build. Well, this is a guy who has a motorcycle that's driving up to a trash can on fire. Don't know why. Praise be to God, though. So um, everything you need. In this little box to build a man on a motorcycle driving up to a trash can on fire. Now, here's also what you know if you're sort of a Lego person or you've had a household of Legos. That after that box is opened and that thing is built, you can say goodbye to ever building it again. Right? So we have, um, we have boxes of Legos, but then we also have the box of Legos. Right? Right? 
And so here's what happens to my son. My son builds um, said motorcycle driver with the trash can on fire once. We take it apart. We put all the pieces back in the box. And then he says to us, I'd love to build the motorcycle guy driving up to the trash can on fire again. Oh, Jesus, help us. Because he can't find all the parts. (laughs) Right? And he doesn't have all the pieces. And I think a lot of us, um, we wrestle with the same thing in life. Like, we love life to look like the box, right? And we would love to have all the instructions that really cleanly, nicely lay out for us exactly what Jesus would have us do. And we would love to know that we have all of the parts and all of the pieces and that it fits perfectly and there's never any um, changes. Like, the, the, he, he freaks out because it's like, I need a blue piece with four on the top and I can't find it. And I'm like, well, here's a, here's a green piece that's not gonna do. And how many of us can relate in life? Right, like we, we thought life was gonna turn out a certain way with our, with our families and we had the box all set and we were opening it and we were putting it together and then it just seemed like we ran out of pieces or maybe the pieces changed colors and so the dream and the hope of what we saw on the future was totally taken off the rails. I mean, some of us, you've you've seen this in your health where you thought life would turn out a certain way and it just hasn't gone that way. You've seen it in the job, relationally. And isn't it true that those are some of the hardest times in life where the things that we've been building get to a certain point and they require a, a course correction from us. And I think far more often it seems like God doesn't hand us the prepackaged box with the specific instructions to put it together in the exact way that we think it should be put together. And far more often God goes, okay, here you go. Here's what you have. You have what feels like random pieces. Are you going to trust me that I can make that work? Or... Are you going to hold on to this ideal of what you think it should look like? And you see, here's one of the hardest things for those who follow Jesus and for those who just long to live a life that brings them joy and happiness and those around them the same. Here's the hardest thing is when we've sort of crafted our life around this is what it should look like and we're handed the box of seemingly random pieces. How do we get from here to there in a place that actually leads us forward. And you see, here's the deal. I think the people that make the biggest impact in the lives of those around them, the people that walk in the most joy, and the people who are people of faith and honor Jesus and lift him high are the people who are able to surrender the picture of the ideal to step into the real. You know, it's easy. It's easy to go back and to read the story of this early church. And to read the story and to see the things that happened and the twists and the turns and to see the way that it transpired. And it's easy to go back and to read, man, how great would that have been? I mean, they they had all these wonderful instructions and they had all of these pieces and it just seemed like God put it all together miraculously and beautifully and they were just sort of along for the ride and, and I bet it must have been great for them. 
And you see, that's easy to do in hindsight, and it's easy to do 2020 looking back at the way God moved and the way God worked. But can I tell you, I'm confident that for the early church, it felt a whole lot more like God said, here's a bunch of random pieces. Will you follow me in it? Then it did, here's the instructions. Step one, step two, step three. You're gonna have all the pieces you ever need. Let's go. I don't think that's any more evident than in the story we find of this church at Antioch. Will you turn there with me? Acts chapter 13, verses one through four. It's a story of this church that God used arguably more than any other church in the history of the church to make much of his glory and his name and his fame It's where the first, quote-unquote, missionaries were sent out from, as we're going to read about this morning. But it's a church that I'm confident looked at God and said, you want us to do what? Acts chapter 13, starting in verse 1. It says, and now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a longtime friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the, Lord, worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, isn't this awesome? They're sent out. Um, Luke makes a point of saying this twice, that this um, duo of Saul and Barnabas is sent out, not necessarily by the church in Antioch. They are sent by them, but they're sent under the leading and guiding and sending of the Holy Spirit. Makes a point of that. After being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Quick time out. We look at that and we go, yep, studied that. That's the first of Paul's three missionary journeys. And from there, and usually, you know, like, they'll put up a map and say, look at where he went. He, went, he, left, from, he left from Antioch and he went to Cyprus. It's an island, it's about 60 miles, and we can trace their journey. And, and all, of this, all the time, we're looking through the lens of, of Saul, the Apostle Paul, and we're looking through the lens of the testimony, the whole of Scripture, and we see the way God used that for his name and his sake and his glory. But I wonder what it was like to be part of the church that sent out their two best, brightest teachers, preachers, apostles, prophets, and then what? And then life turned a, a lot less like this, where, see, see, they have their like five-year vision, right? And they have their model of discipleship, and the church is growing, and the church is taking ground, and they're like, they're going to plant like um, video venues where Saul is preaching all around the known world at the time, <laughs> And then they do this really dangerous thing. They ask God what he wants. And he goes, hmm, yeah. So, so that was great. But what if you went a little bit different direction? So I wonder what God might say to us today. See, here's, here's what this church lives in. We just sang this wonderful song, um, uh, the wonderful cross. It bids me come and die and find that I. Bids me come and die, find that I. Might truly live, right? 
Come and die and find out what it means to really, truly live. And can I just tell you, friend, that sometimes really living means really letting go of what we think life should look like. It did for this early church, and my proposal is that it does for us too. Here's a big idea I want us to wrap our hearts and our minds around this morning as we study God's word together, and it's this sort of, this paradox, this oxymoron, that surrender actually frees us. This idea that we we raise our hands and surrender and say, Jesus, you have my life, use my life for your name, for your sake, for your glory, for my joy. That surrender actually frees us to walk into the life that God has for us. See, Jesus said the same thing to his disciples in Mark chapter 8, verses 34 and 35. He said this. He said, if anyone would come after me. So if you want to know what it looks like to follow after the way of Jesus. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Let him take up his cross and let him follow me. Whoever wants to lose his life. Or let him follow me. And whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And see, we've made that really, quote-unquote, spiritual, and it is that. But Jesus isn't just talking about salvation. He's not talking about how to get in the proverbial door of heaven <clears throat> to take up your cross. He's inviting you to a different way to live. A way to live where we say, all right, Jesus, maybe it doesn't look the way that we thought it would and the pieces we were putting together doesn't look the way we think they should and and the health fell apart and the family fell apart and the job fell apart, but what does it look like to not hold on to that picture but to pick up what's real and what's true and what's actual and follow you into the future that you have? What does that look like? It looks like surrender, I love the way that C.S. Lewis puts it when he says this. The proper good of a creature, speaking of you and I, is to surrender itself to its creator. To enact intellectually, volitionally, and emotionally that relationship which is given in the mere fact of its being a creature. When it does so, it's good and happy. And here's what I found, though. Here's what I found. The danger with me is that I can make that decision to say, okay, Jesus, I'm surrendered to you and I'm yours and you have me. And then I find myself days or weeks or let's be a little more honest, hours or minutes later holding on to things I just gave up. I wonder if the early church wrestled with this, that this is a journey of learning how to follow and learning how to release things that we love and things we hold dear and a dream that we thought was from God to receive from him what he actually is inviting us to walk in. Let me, let me walk you back through this passage. I want to point out a few, I think four things that this early church surrenders and I want to ask the Holy Spirit, would you just press on us, Jesus? Would you, just, would you just press on our hearts and our souls? And maybe if there's any ways we have our, our hands around things that aren't of you, would you just pry them off this morning? Would you pry them off? 13, Acts 13, verse 1. It reads like this. Now there were in Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, 
who we found earlier in their study of the book of Acts is a Levite who's from Cyprus. Simeon, who's called Niger, which means black. Most people think he was probably from the northern part of Africa. Lucius of Cyrene, also a part of Africa. So many people think these two um, men were Africans by ethnicity. Manian, a longtime friend of Herod the Tetrarch. So this was a man who from his very early stages in life was sort of adopted into Herod's royal family and given the explicit job of being friends with Herod's kids. I guess when you're a ruling party, you can assure that your kids aren't bullied, right? So Manian, a lifelong friend, he is in good with King Herod, brutal King Herod, but he's a member of this family, and Saul. So immediately, the first thing you see about Antioch is it has this diversity in leadership that is essentially unparalleled in any other church that we read about in the New Testament. So, friends, coincidence that God uses this church, this diverse church, more than any other church for the sake of his name and his glory. Coincidence? No. No. And, and it's okay if you talk to me here. Coincidence? No. No way. Not even close. This is no accident that this is a church that says, okay, we are willing to surrender this picture we have and that we've probably seen played out around us for decades and years, especially in religious circles, if they were Jewish people. We're willing to surrender to lay down this idea of homogeny or the, the sameness for the sake of community, being together, being together. Not a coincidence that God uses this church to change the world. Now, I started to wrestle with, well, what are some things that they have to, to, to lay down? You look at this, this leadership team, quote unquote. On it, you have somebody who used to murder Christians, Saul. I mean, can you imagine how hard it would have been if you're in the church in Antioch, you see Saul get up to preach a sermon on being meek and mild in the way of Jesus? What's your, your initial thought has to be, <laughs> I saw you hold those coats. We heard stories about the way that you went house to house with a a note from the authorities saying it was okay to persecute followers of Christians. And you're kidding me? You want us to listen to you? And this church just lays it down and says, all right, we'll we'll follow. And, And I mean, Mannion, who's friends with Herod, who's crucified many of their friends, he's put them on Roman crosses outside the city and just nailed them up there for fun. This is one of the leaders. And so this church from its very get-go has this ethic of forgiveness. We're willing to say no to bitterness. And Jesus, we're willing to follow you in the way of grace and the way of mercy. And I wonder if maybe the Spirit wants to ask us through this passage this morning, are there things that we're holding on to that maybe he's calling us to release? See, here's the other thing they had to get get, get a grip on, they had to wrestle with, is preference went out the window, right? Anytime you bring people from around the globe together to form a church together, they're going to have some different ideas of the way that it goes. They're going to have some different ideas of the songs that they sing. They might, they might have different styles of worship, heaven forbid, right? No way. No, yeah. Not them. Only us. 
and they have to lay it down. And I wonder, I wonder if maybe that superiority complex of our way is the best way might be one of the invitations that Jesus gives us to submit at the throne of God this morning. See, this is a church that embodies this New Testament ethic and distinctive that Paul writes about in the book of the letter to the Galatian church. He says this, there's, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male or female for all are one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to his promise. This isn't a verse that says we should all be the exact same or that we should try to conform, but it's a verse about equality, that before the throne of God, we stand together and on the same playing field. This church got it. I wonder if we do. I wonder if I do. Here's a way it continues. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit, what's that word? Said. Said. So, 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 okay, just a quick time out. So much debate about this today. And it's, you have to ignore so much scripture if you want to make the point that God is now mute. Or that God does not speak to people. Or that God doesn't want to communicate to his followers. This is all over the pages of scripture. The Holy Spirit says... Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And so this church in Antioch is going along. They're charting a course. They have their vision. They have their method. They're implementing it. They see big things on the horizon. They think God is all over that and God is in that. And then they do something really dangerous. They pray and they say, God, what do you want for this body? God, what do you want for these people? God, what's your dream? And here's what he does. <laughs> Blows up everything they were probably hoping for. And we can look back and go, isn't it beautiful? Isn't it great that, the, the, that Saul went out and shared the gospel? Yes and amen, it is. But for the church that lets him go, it's devastating. They pray this prayer, though. I mean, to quote a, a famous American poet, they just pray, Jesus, take the wheel. <laughs> right? And here's what happens. Here's what they surrender. Here's what they lay down. They lay down this idea of we're in control of this and we're writing this story to God will listen. What do you have and where are you leading? Friends, not an easy thing to do. A ton of questions, though. One of them being, how do we hear from God? Right? I mean, we have to ask that if we're going to study this passage. How do we hear from God? They, they heard from the Holy Spirit. What did that look like? What did that mean? Let me point out two things that they're doing as they hear from God. And this probably should be a great starting place if we say, hey, Jesus, we'd love to hear you through your spirit speak. One, they're worshiping. Now, don't think singing kumbaya in a circle with somebody playing the acoustic guitar. Think pouring out their hearts in awe and reverence and praise to a holy, beautiful God. Now, may there have been songs involved? Sure. But that's the disposition. God, you are on the throne. Remind us that we're not. Second thing they're doing. It says they're fasting. They're carving out space 
in their lives for God to fill. That's what fasting is. It's creating space, it's creating margin, it's creating hunger that we then turn back to the creator of it all and say, would you fill this vacancy and remind me that you're always longing to fill? See, see, here's the deal. Will you look up at me for just a second? The disposition of your heart will determine the openness of your ears. The disposition of your heart, God, God, what your heart is engaged in will determine whether or not you can hear from God. So second question. Well, first is, well, how do we hear? Second question is, how do we know if it's from God? Great question, right? Is this just me talking? Is this just me thinking? Am I hearing my own thoughts? Is it the pizza I ate last night? What? Whose voice is that, and how do I know, God, if it's from you? Let me fly through these. I just want to point out four sort of lenses we have to see through to try to discern, God, is this from you? One, is what you heard true, does it align with reality? Now, there's going to be some exceptions to that. Let me give you one in the scriptures. The virgin birth, right? Mary comes and says, I think I've heard from God. I'm pregnant, and I'm a virgin, right? So if you tried to lay, is it true, is it real, over that, initially you go, No, but in time, it plays itself out absolutely 100% true. So is it true? Does it align with reality? Second, is it biblical? Okay. Now, not can you find it necessarily explicitly in the pages of Scripture, but does it contradict what God says in his word? Because God will never speak a word to you by his Holy Spirit that contradicts what he's already told you in his written word. So many things we could expand on that, but I'll just leave it at that. Does it contradict his word? Number three, does it lift high the name of Jesus and invite people to walk in his joy? Here's the thing. They can rest assured that Satan is not calling Saul to go preach the gospel to people that haven't heard it. Right? I mean, they're not going, there's no way that's from God. To preach the good. So we have to say, does, it, does what we sense and hear God calling us to do, does it lift high the name of Jesus? And the third, or the fourth that I love here is there's confirmation from this community of faith where they speak into each other's lives and say, you know what? That's what I hear God saying also. And that's where I sense God le- God's leading also. And together they say, all right, Jesus, we're releasing control of where this eventually ends up and we're trusting you to guide and to lead and we're gonna follow. So we're not controlling anymore. We're just, we're trying to listen. God, what might it look like in this random box of circumstances that we call life to follow hard after you? Can I just tell you, I I think we hurt ourselves by our lives being so busy and so loud. The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords longs to speak. And so, so here's where I just sense God convicting me even right now. Do I, do I want to check Facebook more than I want to check with the throne? Do I want to respond to that text or that tweet more than I want to Respond to God. And you see, here's the deal. God's a gentleman. 
He's not just going to force himself on you. But he longs to have this community of faith, followers of Jesus, who together go, hey, life may not turn out exactly the way that we hope, but, but we're going together to the throne. We're carving out space and time and energy to hear. What are you saying, Lord? What are you saying? Do you have that time in your life? The story goes on. So they, while they were worshiping, and just, just a quick time out too, um, there's, a, there's a lot of times in worship where we'll be singing truth about God, we'll be de- declaring truth over each other, and you'll sense, hey, it seems like God may stir, be stirring something in me. Can I just say that's not from the devil? That as you're reminding yourself of truth, as we're declaring to one another what's true about God, he speaks in that, friends. So I encourage you, be responsive. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them, verse three. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. This is a tearful gospel goodbye. This is a five-year vision that walks out the door. This is a method for expansion that's gone. This is a dream for the megachurch that is probably no more as, long, as far as they're concerned. And my guess is that there's a lot of fear and a lot of questions that mark Saul walking down to a boat to get on a missionary journey that who knows how long it's going to last and who knows where it's going to go. And so they have this like this wrestling. Are we going to be the type of people and are we going to be the type of church that's going to build our thing and then protect it? Or are we going to leverage what we have and who we are for the sake and the name of Jesus? I, I want to submit to you, you can't do both. You can't do both. No, no church can say, we're going to build our thing and we're going to protect it and we're going to live for the sake and the name of Jesus. And so they have to surrender this idea of protecting for the sake of opportunity, for the sake of advancement. In a sense, they make a, an investment in the kingdom. And anytime you invest something, it's out of your possession, That's what this church lives. It's what this church does. But here's what they have to do. You know what you can build with this? This. That's it. And you could try to build a few other things, but you only have a certain amount of pieces. And I think sometimes when God rips the ideal out of our hand, he hands us something that's way bigger. Because let me remind you, God's vision was not that he would build a church in Antioch. God's vision was that he would build a kingdom. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says, I am giving you my Holy Spirit. It will empower you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And I wonder what it looks like to be the type of people that say, all right, we're not just going to protect our own thing, but we're going to use everything. For the glory of Jesus. Friends, the church was never meant to be a fortress. Um, I, I, just a little bit of study on this fortress that, that, that's called Masada. It was built by King Herod the Great. 
is somewhere between 31 and 37 BC, he constructed this thing. I mean, it's massive. The walls on, on most sides are about 1,300 feet high. And after Jerusalem was sacked in 70 AD, there was a number of Jewish people who went and camped out and hunkered down, bunkered down at Masada. And for three to four years, they were there and they lived at the top of this place and they thought their life was pretty secure until Herod started building a battering ram that was gonna go up and eventually take it down. I started to think about this picture in my head, how many of us would long for the church to be like a fortress where we're protected, where we potentially have everything we need. And in some ways, the the Constantinian Christendom that we still live under the ideal of in the United States, that somehow, some way, um, we'll get the majority and we'll rule by power, somehow, some way, that still shapes the way that we think about the mission of God. Can I tell you, this is not the way God designed us to live. This is sort of like when the Broncos go into, at least under Dan Reeves, they would go into the prevent defense, and you're like, oh, please don't go into the prevent defense. Because you know we always lose when we do that. I think you would say the same thing to the church. Don't just try to protect the holy huddle. Don't just try to build up the inside at the expense of my calling. And to every tribe, every tongue, every nation for the sake and for the name of Jesus One of the greatest threats to Christianity, hear me, friend, is the church deciding it's going to value comfort over mission. And the reason you read about the Antioch church is because it says, God, everything we have is yours. What do you want to do? Well, I want to send your best, your brightest, your preacher, your teachers, and I want to give them away. God, they're yours. Do with them what you will. They're yours. You know, I think we, you and I have the same opportunity. We have the same challenge as individuals too. Are we gonna protect ourselves? So relationally, are we gonna protect ourselves? I'm not gonna let you in so you can hurt me? Or are we gonna open ourselves and risk? I love the way that Larry Crabb writes about this in his book, Shattered Dreams, but he says this. He says, the more clearly we recognize how deep our commitment to self-protection operates. Just a quick time out. Um, if you haven't done some self-reflection on that lately, can I encourage you, press in there. Press in there. In our relational style, and the more courageously we face the ugliness of protecting ourselves rather than loving others. Come back to that in a second. The more we'll shift our direction. See, here's the way he puts it. I said we can value comfort over mission. What he says is we can either protect ourselves or we can love others, but really we can't do both. We can't do both. I love this picture of a New Testament church that says, we'll go on this, we'll go on this journey with you, Jesus. We don't know what it looks like, and man, that would be nice. (laughs) But we'll walk with you, and what you provide, we'll receive. And you know what happens? In Acts chapter 13, verse 12, what happens is the proconsul, some of the ruling authorities of the day, the Romans, they start to believe the gospel. In Acts chapter 13, verses 42 through 43, the Jewish people are introduced to the hope of their Messiah. Some of them respond, some of them don't, but the message starts to get out. In verses 49 and 52, what you see 
is that people who are far from God are brought near, and it says they were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. See, when we're willing to surrender this idea of protecting ourselves and embracing the opportunity, see, those are decisions God's hand is on and he blesses, friend. Hey, cards on the table. Here we go. I'm praying, I'm praying that from this body of believers, there would be some who would rise up and say, I really sense God calling me. I sense God moving in my heart and my life. And I sense him calling me to fill in the blank. I don't have an agenda there. And we could come alongside you and say, let's, let's seek the Lord. Let's ask him if that's what he has. And then let's follow. And it, and it might be some people that really stings to lose. In the coming years, I pray, I'm praying cards on the table. I'm praying that we would plant many, many churches. If you're here um, last week and saw Naroop lead, he's planting a church in Denver. Um, his statistics say that Denver is one of the top five least churched areas in the nation. You can go anywhere from top five to top 15. Either way, the point is there, there needs to be more churches in the Denver area or at least more people who are sharing the grace and love and mercy of Jesus. I wonder what it looks like for us to step into that. Here's what I know it looks like surrendering some of what we maybe hope happens right here. So, the Holy Spirit says, send them. (laughs) It's funny though, he doesn't say where. He says it twice, and the Holy Spirit sent them, and, and neither time does it identify the Holy Spirit sent them to Cyprus or Seleucia. That's simply where they go. So here's a, if, I, if God says this to me, here's some questions that I have for God. Where are we supposed to go? When are we coming home? How are we going to get there? Where are we going to stay? Who are we supposed to talk to? Where's the support going to come from? And this is just me because I'm usually hungry. What are we going to eat? Right? See, the call to go was clear, but the place was not. And this is usually the game that I play with God. Hey, God, I sense that you're asking me, calling me, inviting me to do this. So here's my 20 questions for you. And you know what I've usually found? Is the Lord is far more clear in his call than he is in his destination oftentimes. And I wonder what it might look like to surrender some of our desire for clarity to walk into obedience. Because would you agree that sometimes the clear picture we have of the ideal needs to be put on the altar to embrace the real? So here's the picture, friends, that you have in front of you. You have a group of people, a community of faith who are walking together, who are loving each other, who are sitting under the teachings of the scripture and who are listening to God and their lives are open to him. They're saying, God, we're gonna release control. We're gonna listen. We're gonna release our desire to protect and we're gonna embrace the opportunity. And and God, we don't know exactly what you're doing, but we do know this, we wanna follow Wherever you lead, wherever you send, we're gonna go. We're gonna go. And so I wonder what it looks like for you and for me 
to really embrace this invitation from our great God? Are there things this morning that you're holding on to? Is there a desire for clarity that maybe Jesus isn't bringing, but he is showing you, here's the next step. You know what faith looks like? It's not the big step. Faith is the next step. What does it look like to take it? See, because here's the truth of the matter, is that God builds his beautiful kingdom of freedom, and it is a kingdom of freedom. You'll remember that Jesus says, I've come that the captives might be set free, that the blind might receive sight, that the lame might walk, and that those who are in prison might be released. That's freedom. Ironically, he builds this kingdom of freedom through people who say, I'm not my own, I was bought at a price. And you know what? That's the greatest freedom that any of us could ever walk in. I'm not my own. I was bought at a price. And you know what, God? My dream is not my own. And my health isn't my own. And my job isn't my own. And my family, it's not my own. As hard as it is to say, it's yours. And so, God, I'm surrendering it all on the altar to follow after you. We love that verse. Some of you might even have a mug with it on it or a t-shirt or even a tattoo where Paul says, hey, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But this life I live, I live through the son who loved me and gave himself for me. So I wonder what it looks like for us to submit under that lordship and follow his lead. Would you pray with me? So before we go running off, I just want to invite you to pray. Would you, would you just lift your palms to the, to the sky with me? Just, just as symbolic of uh, our openness, Jesus, our hands are open to you. Our lives are open to you. Our hearts are open to you. We long for our ears and our minds to be open to you, Lord. Is there anything that you want to take out? Is there anything you want to replace? Is there anything you want to put in? God, we're willing to follow And Lord, we understand that that submission to you, that surrender to you may mean that life looks a lot different than we thought it would or hoped that it might be. But Lord, those visions of what we thought or what we might or what we prayed or dreamed, would you help us to lay those down at your altar and to receive from you what you are giving us? That we might follow boldly the name of Jesus might be made more famous. This audio is from South Fellowship Church. Feel free to make copies of this message, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. For more information about South Fellowship, please visit us at southfellowship.org.